Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing this morning. If you follow the church calendar, today is officially the third Sunday of Easter, and we're going to be continuing to look at the many sides of the Easter story. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24 this morning, beginning in verse 13. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. Let me read for us. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to, opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So we have this interesting story. Now, there's a lot of stories in the Bible that I wish I could go back in time and see. Uh, growing up, uh, I used to listen uh, occasionally, not as much as my wife, she'll talk to you about this for hours. I used to listen to Adventures in Odyssey. Anybody else, Adventures in Odyssey fans? Yeah, Rachel. Rachel have we have cassettes still that she won't let me throw away because we can't lose the episodes. Uh, but one of the uh, some of the the stories of Adventures in Odyssey, they had remember the Imagination Station and they'd go back and and live within the Bible stories. 
there's a lot of stories that I would love to see just to be be witness the power of God and witness the miracles. This story, for the most part, I really wish I could see, but selfishly, mostly just for my own enjoyment. Anybody else? Nobody's there with me. Let, let me explain. This story is hilarious. And, and to me, the most inf- unfortunate thing about this story is that there was no one there to watch what happened and just be on the side of the road laughing their heads off. Right Now, I do also wish I could be there to hear what Jesus says to the men, because if I could hear Jesus give a just a systematic theology and understanding of the Old Testament, that would be very valuable too. But if I'm honest, more than that, I think I would just enjoy it. All right, you're not sold. Let's walk through the story. All right, and this isn't the main point of the sermon. This is just getting us to it. So we have these two people on this road to Emmaus, right? There's a lot about this story we don't know. Uh, Emmaus must have been a very small town because it's not one that we really have a record of. We don't know who these two disciples are. Uh, We know that they weren't the 11. They weren't part of the original 12, now 11. They weren't apostles. But what's interesting, if we pause for a moment and think about it, is that they were heavily involved in the ministry of Jesus and with Jesus's followers. Because think about what happens on Easter. We've read multiple times in every gospel that the disciples were together and they had the doors locked, right? Because of their fear of the Jews. So the disciples are not out in public. They're not wandering around. They are locked in a upper, probably an upper room of some house somewhere in Jerusalem. Now, these two disciples, we don't know uh, if it's a man and a woman. Lots of scholars try to figure out who they were, what the makeup of this group was. We don't know. What we do know about them is they knew intimate details of the happenings on Easter morning. They knew the stories about the women going to the tomb and coming back. They knew about um, Simon running down to the tomb and, and seeing that the tomb was empty They knew things that they only would have known if they had been in that locked room. Which, again, that locked room that, if you're like me, you've probably always pictured as just the 11 apostles, right? Um, That's how I've always pictured it. So so initially, we, we don't know much about these two, except they apparently were very close and intimate with the disciples to the point where the disciples trusted them with their location when they were hiding from the religious leaders. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was afraid for my life and I was going to share my location with someone, it would have to be someone that I really trusted, right? Let alone if you're one of the disciples and you realize that one of the 12 of you just betrayed Jesus... I would be pretty skeptical of anybody. So whoever these two are, they were close with the disciples, which also means they were close with Jesus, which is a pretty important part of this story. Now, they left Jerusalem. I've always kind of wondered about that and why they were leaving Right? You would think that if they're disciples of Jesus and he's killed and then you get news that maybe Jesus has risen from the dead, you would possibly stick around to find out if it was true or not. Um, 
if that's a concern you have, one thought on that is that this village was fairly close to Jerusalem. If they lived in this village, then they were probably commuting back and forth to their house. And we know from the text that they arrived at the house right at the end of the day as the sun was going down, as it was becoming the time that you really didn't want to be on the road. And so these two stayed in Jerusalem as long as they possibly could to ensure a safe journey to Emmaus. Now, I don't know if they lived there full time or what. Maybe they had family there. But it's safe to say that they stayed in Jerusalem as long as they safely could before they leave. All right, now the fun part. So these two are walking. We know that they were in tight with the disciples. We know that they were then close with Jesus. They had seen him preach. They had, they had eaten with him. They had traveled with him. They had, they had relaxed. They had taken days off with him. They were close. So they're walking along the road, and they were talking about the things that had happened over the weekend. Now, talking about spiritual and scriptural and religious things on the road was a common practice for Jews. It was something that they did intentionally in response to God throughout the the Old Testament telling them and teaching them to, to be speaking of him as they were on their way. So that's a common practice, but these two disciples are walking along the road. They're discussing what has happened over the course of the weekend, and I'm sure what had happened that morning. And then all of a sudden, while they were walking and talking, Jesus just sort of comes up behind them. Now, keep in mind, there were probably a good number of people on this road. Jesus couldn't have just appeared out of nowhere, because that would have been a a bit of a giveaway, right? So Jesus had to either be pretending to tie his shoe, or walking very quickly, or I, I don't know what. This is why I wish I was there. But somehow, Jesus finds a way to very sneakily just casually walk up beside these two, right? And this is the part where I really wish I could witness it. They're sitting there talking about him. Jesus walks up somehow. He somehow nonchalantly doesn't really draw attention to himself, draws near them. Now, we know that their eyes are prevented from seeing who he was, which tells us that he didn't look different. It wasn't that he was unrecognizable that something spiritually was happening that prevented them from recognizing him. So Jesus just casually, somehow, walks up to these two men. Their eyes were kept from recognizing. And he said to them, hey, what are you guys talking about? Very nonchalant. He's just a lonely traveler by himself. His shoes keep coming untied. He walks up, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they stood still, looking sad. That part's not funny. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here? In the, the He kind of insults Jesus a little bit, right? That's, that's the tone of this, if you read into it. Are you the only person that doesn't know what's happening right now? He just met this guy. Poor, wandering, alone guy. And then Jesus looks at him and says, What things? You realize that that would be hilarious to watch, right? Come. He's Jesus. They know him. We've got like photo albums together, right? 
What things? What things he says? I would be just over in a ditch dying <laughs> at this point. And then they go on and, and they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who is standing right there, right? They use his full name. And then they go on and they, they tell the story and they talk about all of these things that happened in the women and all of this. And then Jesus turns completely and says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he just goes into this teaching for the next I don't know how long he took to catch up to them, but a number of miles. They don't seem to really notice that he goes from having no idea about the giant commotion and the crowds and everything that happened to all of a sudden knowing everything about the Christ. They're not, at least the text doesn't record them being caught off guard by that to any degree. He switches from being this kind of clueless just bystander walking with them to giving them this incredible, deep, opening with a little bit of judgment and rebuke teaching. So then they walk and he teaches and he teaches and they don't see them. And then just because he's going to continue doing it, they get to the village and Jesus pretends he's going to keep walking. He had nowhere to go. He wasn't, he wasn't going to keep walking. Uh, but he pretends he's going to keep walking, and they invite him in, and he goes into the house. And So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They get up at this point, they go back to the road, and in the more dangerous, dark no one's on the road, more likely to get robbed, time of night. They run back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples. I think one of the most important questions we need to ask about this passage is why. Why is it that these disciples were prevented from seeing and recognizing Jesus until the end of of the story. The text is clear that it wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't because they didn't recognize him. It wasn't that he looked different, right? It wasn't like a, he had glasses on like Clark Kent and then he took his glasses off when he blessed the bread and all of a sudden everyone recognized him. Little Superman joke. It's all right. It wasn't that kind of situation. He didn't have on a disguise and he took it off. It wasn't that they finally realized it. It's not that their eyes were, they got home and they put on their glasses and they could see and, oh, it's Jesus. We didn't realize because he was fuzzy this whole. There was no physical reason. It wasn't a timing thing. It was deliberate. And the text says that they were prevented from seeing and then their eyes were opened. Not they opened their eyes. Their eyes were opened spiritually by the Father through the Spirit. So they were prevented, must have been for a reason, and their eyes were opened at a specific time. Why is that? Now I can come up with some practical reasons for it, which are, I imagine, true and right and good. Uh, things like if he had revealed himself to them immediately, I don't think they would have paid much attention to the sermon. 
to the teaching, right? If he had walked up on the road and they immediately said, oh my goodness, it's Jesus, they would have been very tempted to immediately run back and tell the disciples. Um, They would have just been overcome with excitement and emotion and they probably paid better attention to the teaching not knowing who he was. So as as I've studied this passage and read about it, that seems to be the best logical explanation for why this happened. I don't think it's untrue. I think it's probably right that the teaching he was giving them was important. It was, I'm sure, something that they shared with the, the disciples. If not this day, then in the coming weeks. that They said, hey, let's, can we sit down and tell you about all this stuff? Jesus made these connections with the Old Testament prophets and with Moses that he'd never made before, and let's talk about it. That was good information. But I believe there's something deeper going on in this passage. One of the things that we recognize about the church, if you've been in the church for a long time, is that often we can study and study and study the word and it doesn't necessarily mean that we experience life change. Uh, Michelle Hendricks um, wrote a book, co-authored a book, called The Other Half of Church. And in this book, he describes how he was a pastor for discipleship at a very large megachurch. And he wrote all of this curriculum and all of these programs and all of these small group guides and all of, he did all of these things, all of these programs, all of these ministries. And what he found and was infuriated by, infuriated, infuriated, I add some letters, What infuriated him, what made him mad, (laughs) was that there was no way to predict what would be successful. And so a curriculum that in one small group, in one ministry, would yield unbelievable results and life change in genuine faith and passionate believers, in another group, would do very little. And there would be very little life change very little development, very little passion. And it was the same book, right? It was the same three-ring binder of teachings and questions. And, and after years of this, he eventually uh, left that church and looking back, couldn't figure out what the difference was and why sometimes, and you've probably seen this, right? We see two kids grow up and they're in the same Sunday school classes and they're, they go to the same VBS every summer and they do everything the same and then their faith is very different. We all can point to times in our own lives that we've been involved with ministries and things in the church that led to incredible growth and areas where we were showing up a lot but that growth wasn't happening. Now, the book that I've read answers and gives provides an answer to that question. And we're not going to get a lot into it today, but I, I, I wanted to share just what he saw because I think it's something that we all see, both as we are in leadership, and those of you who are in leadership here or leading children's ministries or adult ministries, but also in our own lives because we all want to experience growth We all want to become more like Christ. And what we often find 
is that we know the right answers, but we're not doing the right things. We all know that we need to be slow to... I think you mumbled anger. We need to be slow to... We need to be slow to... You all know that verse, right? But how many people in the last week have had something happen and you've, if you're lucky, you've caught the anger right on the tip of your tongue? Anybody catch anger right on the tip of their tongue this week? Or (laughs) halfway across the driveway? We know that we are called to be a people that are slow to anger. We know that. We understand that. But sometimes that just feels like a lot of work. And really, that's what's at the heart of this. Often, all of Christianity just feels like a lot of work, doesn't it? And we get this sense that it shouldn't be that way. But we're not sure how to change it. What we need to understand, the basic principle is this. There are two pieces of who you are that determine how you act. Simply put, we have our conscious thoughts and understanding, and we have our instincts and our emotion. We have the, the part of, of our brains that has, has um, tangible memory that we can think, that we can articulate, and there are the things that are embedded within us. Right? There are people that, if, I, if, my, if my car breaks down, I will call my mechanic. When I drive a Volkswagen, I have one mechanic that specializes in Volkswagens, and if my Volkswagen breaks down, I'm going to call him. Why? Because I know he knows a lot more about the car than I do. If there's a day where I'm hurting, I'm going to call my wife. And I can't tell you why. I mean, I could. I could make up reasons, and I, I could tell you reasons why. And I could say, well, you know, she's really good at offering words of encouragement. But ultimately, you understand that I'm not calling my wife because of what I understand about her. I'm calling my wife because of the connection that I have with her. Those are two very different types of relationships. I can justify the one, and it makes sense. But I am drawn to my wife in times of difficulty. I'm drawn to my wife in times of joy. When something good happens, she's the first person I want to call. Not because she needs the information, but because I have that connection. And our Christian life works the same way. That we have a lot of things we need to know and learn and understand. Right? Just like if Rachel and I only had experiences together when we were dating and we never had any significant conversation, our marriage would not have lasted this long, right? Our marriage began, our relationship began with mostly theological discussions because we're weird nerds. It began with information. We learned things about each other that we respected and that we appreciated and that we recognized were compatible with each other. But then we developed this closer attachment bond right and so in christianity the information is important and this is exactly 
hear me, this is exactly what happens in this passage, right? We are not straying from this passage at all right now. The information is important. But if it doesn't become a part of who we are relationally, and that's a, that's a big concept to un- understand and unpack. I recognize that. But if it doesn't become a part of who we are, it doesn't become the instinct, then you're just going to work really hard at being a Christian until the day you die. And I've unfortunately done plenty of funerals for people that just worked really hard at being a Christian until the day they died. They were wonderful people and they did amazing things, but it was hard for them. So with that in mind, let's think of this passage again. Jesus shows up on the road. He starts walking with them and he starts teaching them. Because the teaching is important. The truth is important. The understanding is important. We need to know God's word. We need to know God's law. It tells us what we are meant to do, how we are to perceive. It's important. He starts there. And wouldn't you think that the greatest preacher of all time would be most recognizable while preaching? Have you ever had someone in your life that you you saw them a lot? Maybe it's your your dentist. Maybe it's your um, someone at the at the a store that you go to all the time. But have you ever had a person that you know you know them exclusively in one role, and then all of a sudden you see them somewhere else and they're unrecognizable? Right. And you don't you, you know that oh, man? You look so familiar, but and then all of a sudden, um, you know, something happens. You, you make the and you realize, oh, it's. But without the circumstance, without the scrubs and stethoscope, man, I can't talk today. <laughs> Hold on, water break. Without all that circumstantial stuff, you don't recognize them. Wouldn't you think that while he was preaching? That would be the one place somebody would recognize Jesus when he was teaching. Because preaching was the most significant thing Jesus did, right? That's what we believe. That's what we're inclined to believe. But they don't recognize him when he was teaching. They invite him into the house because... They're being hospitable. They're being good hosts. They're concerned about his health and well-being. Not Still not because they know he's Jesus. They're just doing the right thing. They invite him into the house. And they sit down at the table. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Does that phrase sound familiar to anyone? happens two other times in the Gospel of Luke. The first is just a couple pages earlier at the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, we don't know if these two were there. Um, I researched it a bunch this week to try and figure it out. Some people like to say that there were two other disciples at the Last Supper. We don't know if it's these two. Um, 
But Jesus said it there. But that's not the only place he says it. He also says it back. Oh, I had the page marked and it unmarked itself. My, my bookmark fell out. It's a more normal way to say that. Um, I'll just tell you what it is. He says it uh, at the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding the 5,000, almost the exact same words. He took the bread and when he had blessed it, he broke it and then distributed and what we know from those three is that this was something that happened often. And actually, if you, if you go back into Jewish culture, uh, there's something called the hamotzi, which is the Jewish blessing of bread, the Jewish blessing over bread. In English, it's simply this, blessed are you, Lord our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. If you're someone who watches The Chosen, you've heard that, right? Does anybody remember hearing that in The Chosen? A couple of you? Yeah. And there's a number of other blessings like that in The Chosen that they say over and over and over, and that's because the Jews said it over and over and over. That was the blessing that they prayed specifically over bread. Most of the time it would be prayed at nearly every meal, and especially at um, on Sabbath they would pray it as a group, any feast, they would pray it together as a group, a simple, short prayer. They would often pray it at the beginning, and then at the end of the meal, there would be another longer blessing of thanks. But they're smarter than we are, and they pray short at the beginning when everybody's hungry, which is very <laughs> brilliant. But that was a common... So we read that, and in English it says he blessed the bread, and we're not really sure necessarily what that means, but for them it, it was common. They always did that. Everyone always did that. So it wasn't even that that was something that was unique to Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus had his own special bread blessing prayer, right? Every, every single Jewish person that started a meal prayed the exact words that Jesus prayed. Why? Why would that be the moment God opened their eyes? Now, again, we can talk about this practically and say, well, maybe Jesus was just done teaching them. He had somewhere else to be, so he had to open their eyes so they could recognize him and he could leave. There was nothing else to teach them. It, we could make the argument that it was purely practical. But I don't believe that. And I don't believe that because of the whole rest of the Bible and what it teaches us about who God is and the relationship that he wants with us. Here's what I believe, what I see in this text and throughout the New Testament, what I see in the Christmas story primarily. They didn't recognize him until he broke the bread. Because the greatest thing that Jesus did was not teach. The greatest thing he did was just be. He sat around the table. We would define Jesus because, you know, we read the Bible and it's all, it's all about his teaching. It's all about the words that he says. When we read the Bible, our biggest interaction with Jesus is through his words. And you know, church, I think that's part of our problem. That we see Jesus, and I'm, 
This isn't like a courtesy we where I don't have I don't struggle with this and I'm just saying we to make you feel better. We struggle with this. It's so easy to just make Jesus about his words so that we see him primarily as a speaker, a good preacher, before we see him as someone who sits around the table with the people that he loves. But the incarnation doesn't support that understanding, right? And if we look at this story of we have teaching and then we have table, Isn't that our whole Bible? Don't we have an old covenant that was just teaching after teaching after teaching, and then all of a sudden there's a new covenant that comes where God comes down to be with us? And we needed the teachings that Jesus brought. All right, hear me on that. I'm not saying that they were irrelevant. We needed the teachings that Jesus brought, but we needed Jesus a lot more. Because they had lots of teachings and they weren't fulfilling them. They weren't following them. It's not like Moses gave the people the law and they obeyed everything perfectly and then Jesus came to give them a little bit more. Moses gave the law, they utterly and completely failed at it and then Jesus came and said, look, I'm going to give you some more teaching but also and more importantly, I'm going to give you the ability to follow and fulfill that teaching through my presence. The incarnation, the whole New Testament, is sitting, Jesus is God, sitting at the table with us. So this sermon is really just an introduction to what will be a very long conversation, probably over the next couple of years, as we, as a church, seek how we can better live relationally with each other, and with the Father. And this isn't something that I have figured out. I don't have all of the answers. From the beginning, Rachel and I have always had great success in small group ministry. We had a small group in Illinois that met out of our 800 square foot apartment that grew to over 20 people before we left. And it was a wonderful, wonderful group. And we had at one point We were leading five small groups a week out of our house in Wolcott. It's something that we love to do, but it's something that we're still learning a lot about. And as we've taken this last year to take a break from vocational ministry, and I haven't been on staff really officially in any capacity, this is one of the things that we've been reading and praying a lot about is how to increase our understanding of what it means to live relationally as a church. And I'm still figuring that out. And I'm looking forward to figuring it out with you. And so this is just the beginning. We need teaching. We need Bible studies. We need classes. We need to all, every single one of us, be growing in our understanding of the word and what it means. But if we leave it there, we leave it there, we are missing what I believe I can confidently what I can confidently say responsibly say was the most significant aspect of Jesus's ministry and it wasn't the teaching it was the table so how do we as a church pursue Christ to the table how do we 
have that fellowship, have that relationship? How do we become a fuller, richer church community as we gather together and as we go about our daily lives? Now, I don't want to leave you just with a bunch of questions, so I'll try to give you at least a bit of closure as we go. One of the things that the church can do better than anything else in the world is we are able to sit in joy and sorrow and hold both of those things in our hands. Because we know where our joy comes from, and because we know who sees us in our sorrow, because of where we place our hope. And we know that when things are difficult, it doesn't mean that the place we placed our hope has fallen or failed. If I place my hope in my own ability to succeed, to achieve financial stability, and I lose my job, then everything else crumbles. We don't have that. We can hold joy and sorrow. We can be a people that aren't worried about bringing others down when they are other believers. That we don't have to be afraid to be honest about our difficulties, which I had to do this morning when I was asked how my week was. I said, oh, it was great. I said... No, it wasn't. And Denise and I had a discussion about that. We're going to spend some time in the coming months talking about Christian fellowship and what's that, what that looks like. But what I'll say about it now is this. As Christians, it's not enough for us to just put ourselves in the same room as one another and believe that that counts as Christian fellowship and that we can check it off the box. We need to be as intentional having fellowship with one another as we are intentional as we read the word of God. That, this isn't me, but there are people that go out and learn to fluently speak dead languages or languages that are um, not spoken in any of their circles. I know people that can speak fluent biblical Greek. And if they can find someone else as as dedicated as they are, they could have a conversation. That's the amount of intentionality some people put into studying the word. Are we putting that intentionality into our relationships with one another? So that's your challenge this week because I want to give you something to work on give you something to move forward into. Are we intentional in our times of fellowship with one another? When we gather with other believers, are we discussing their lives, our lives? Are we being open? Are we being honest? Are we praying for one another? If I ask you the question, and I'll ask myself, because there's weeks or more where this is... The answer to this question is not what I want it to be. When was the last time your family prayed with another Christian family? When was the last time you and your spouse prayed with another Christian husband and wife? 
I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not saying go out and do it. I'm saying that's an opportunity for you to be blessed by someone else. That you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have a perfect marriage. It's okay to go to somebody else and say we're really struggling. Do we open up to one another about that? Or do we save that for our work friends? Be intentional about our fellowship with one another. And in the midst of all that, remind yourself that Jesus walked up to these two guys and had the audacity to say, what things? Let's pray. Father, we... uh, Lord, I pray that none in this room are discouraged by this. And as I look at my own life, as I think about these things, it's so easy for me to just look back on missed opportunities. Times when I could have reached out to another person who was maybe in need. Times that I have just been so focused on on pursuing academic, intellectual truth in your word that I didn't pursue true relationships And that can be so discouraging, Lord. But we rebuke that because you don't call us to feel guilty for our past to the point where it renders us inoperable in the present. And so we we turn from that and we just accept the beauty and grace of whatever path you're laying before us. This morning, Lord, I pray that we just seek to place our eyes on you. May we, as we look at others, make the assumption that they, in everything they do, have done the best they possibly can. And may we extend that grace also to ourselves, that if there are areas where we say, I need to be better, that it's not because I wasn't good enough yesterday, but because I can be better tomorrow. We thank you, Lord, for those in this room that have taught Sunday school classes, that have led small groups, that have done devotionals, that have have taught, have given hours, days, weeks, and probably years of their time to the study and sharing of your word. We thank you for the fruit of those ministries. And Lord, we thank you for those times that genuine Christian fellowship and and relationship has just naturally sprung up from within our midst. We thank you for those times that as a church we have been able to come together to love one another, to grow close to one another, and to reflect not only your teachings, but your character through relationships as well. But as we look to the future, Lord, we also pray that you make us better each and every day. That you continue to mold and shape your church to follow you, to not only speak your words, but speak them in your voice and in your character may we love like you love may we relate to one another the way you relate to us and may we draw closer to you every day and lord we know and i'm not saying that the christian life is ever going to be easy 
Because the closer we get to you, the more the attacks come, and we recognize that. But each and every day, may the person you are creating within us, the person you have called us to be, may it become deeper and deeper, more embedded in the fabric of who we are. Jesus, we thank you for coming to live with us, to be with us, to sit and share a table with us. Let us remember that that is who you are. That you came and sat at the tables of ordinary people. People that weren't political allies, they weren't strategic relationships designed for getting your message out farther. You just sat with people because they were yours and because you loved them. May we remember that we are those people, that our neighbors and our friends are those people as well. Create in us deep love for one another, we pray. We ask these things in your name.